Despite all its fumbling bureaucratic procedures and economic turmoil, the European Union's been built on a model that appears to be working pretty much as intended. Basically, the French know that if the Germans go down economically, they go down too, and vice versa. And that is the point of the EU, and it has worked until this point. Nobody is shooting at anybody. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Jonathan Grobert brings us a journalist perspective on the politics of Europe especially the changing scene in the Netherlands, where recent elections are steering the nation to a more centrist course. And traveler Samantha Brown lets us in on how she makes her TV specials for the Travel Channel and some of the tricks she uses to make it all look so effortless on screen. I have a stylist, I do, because, you know, when you're in Cambodia and it's 110 degrees, you can't look like it's 110 degrees. Plus, our listeners share creative ways they're planning to enjoy Europe this year. Another year brings new adventures. So come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Comparing notes. It's a surefire way to sharpen your skills and to share in the joy of the work you do. Coming up in a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves, TV travel host Samantha Brown takes us behind the scenes of her frequent travels and tells us about her latest adventures. And speaking of comparing notes... I think one of the most useful ways for us Americans to figure out how to solve some of our nation's problems is to look at how other nations deal with their own issues. Let's use the Netherlands as our vantage point right now as we check in with Jonathan Grobert on what the New Year's bringing to the European Union. Jonathan is an American journalist who's been living in the Netherlands now for more than 20 years. He's married and raising a family there, and until recently, he hosted programs on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Rick. What's happening lately in the Netherlands, from your perspective? Probably the most important thing to happen in the country were the elections last September. A lot of people characterize this as getting back to the way things used to be, because the previous government was the most right-wing government that the Netherlands had seen since the end of the Second World War. It was a two right-wing parties. One was an economically conservative party, one was socially conservative, and then there was the Freedom Party, which is considered by many to be an extreme right-wing anti-Islamic party. They weren't officially in government. They were sort of had agreed tacitly to vote with the government all along. And what happened was is the three parties needed to agree on serious austerity measures in order to make lots and lots of cuts. This is what the, the prime minister wanted. And uh, they had sequestered themselves in a little house and were there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And at the very end of it, the very end of those talks, just as there was light at the end of the tunnel and they were about to come to an agreement, Geert Wilders, the, the head of the Freedom Party, just pulled out of the talks, pulled his government support from the other two parties. The government fell. And before you knew it, we had elections again, snap elections again in September And what's really great about this, Rick, is people say it's back to business because it's the Labour Party together with the VVD Party, that's, again, the fiscal conservatives, formed yet another government. This government is going to have to have a lot of tolerance of each other because they're really quite opposite thinkers. But they've agreed that there are going to be a lot of cuts. It's going to be tremendous fiscal conservatism. And this is all in the name of getting the Netherlands back on the road to recovery. But this is a more centrist or liberal coalition that's agreeing that austerity is necessary. They're going to have to be centrist because the Labour Party is center-left. The VVD is considered to be center-right, although when it comes to business and fiscal issues, they're very far to the right. Okay. But this is the way it works in Europe because you have to have a lot of marriages of convenience. That's the way you form governments. Give us a little um, primer on how parliamentary governments work in Europe. The way most parliamentary governments work in Europe, take the Netherlands, you have a parliament with 150 seats. In order to get a majority, you need to have 76 seats. It's simple math. But almost nobody ever gets 76 seats because there's a large number of parties. In the Netherlands, you have nine parties right now, and in some countries, you have even more. The largest party in the election, the one that has the most seats, gets to form the government, so they get to go around to ask the other parties whether or not they want to join them and, you know, also reject other parties and say, we're absolutely not going to form a government with you. Now, in the case of the Netherlands last election, the second largest party was the Labour Party. And frankly, mathematically, the only party 
that they were able to form another government. I mean, they could have done it, but they would have needed like four other parties. That's how splintered the vote was. Four other parties. Think of the amount of concessions that they would have to make just to form a government to do that. And now, Jonathan, because of this necessity to compromise, do you have racist groups that actually have a voice in governments, even though they would only have less than 10% of the uh, popular support? The answer to that is yes and no, because it depends upon how willing the other parties are to work with that far-right party, as it were. I'll give you a perfect example. Here in the Netherlands, the last government, the previous government, actually decided that they were going to come up with some kind of compromise construction, and they weren't going to invite the Freedom Party into government. By the way, the, the Freedom Party is the anti-Muslim conservative party, right? That's right. The PVV, run by Gert Wilders, he of the Mozart blonde hair. And basically, uh, they decided that they were going to vote as a block. So they made an agreement, even though it wasn't a formal agreement. Now, in a country like Belgium, actually, for many, many years running, the largest party in Flanders has been the right-wing extremist Flemish party. And all the other parties in government simply refuse to work with them. They're called a cordon sanitaire. Huh. And as a result of the fact that, yes, as a result of the fact that even though these guys are the biggest year in, year out, and nobody else wants to work with them, they have been kept out of power in this way. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jonathan Grobert, who's a journalist in the Netherlands. He's the former host of The State We're In on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, I'd like to just kind of just dip through a lot of issues that we're looking at in Europe from your perspective as a journalist in the Netherlands. First of all, when you think of the European Union economic crisis, is this fundamentally because the demographic makeup of European society has changed and when you have a, a rich and well-educated society, it has less children, therefore less workers and more people living really long and they simply cannot uh, maintain the promises they made previous generations for retirement and all of their um, cradle-to-grave kind of security? Well, here's, here's the thing is, I don't think the demographic change is as big a problem. Okay, well, that's, that's what I'm curious about, because it seems like you can't have a geriatric society promising all this if you don't have a lot of people working to fund it. Yeah, but that's something that's still down the road. It's not the cause of what's happening now, in my personal opinion. I'm so glad you asked me this, Rick, because now I get to go on my soapbox, because I predicted this when they first introduced the euro, not because I was against the euro, but because I saw the tremendous mistakes that they were making by, for example, letting in countries like Greece and Portugal and other countries that were simply not ready to be in the euro and that were going to make it unstable simply because anybody with eyes could see that they were cooking the books. Right. And that is the reason why this is happening, not because the European economic model is simply not going to work, hmm. but simply because they were cooking the books and you didn't have a central bank with enough control over the individual economies in the same way the Fed has control over each and every state. The Fed has much more central power. Okay, so then what you're saying is that countries like Greece got in by having false kind of affluence and they weren't really meriting to be on board with Germany and France. That's right. And, and the big problem with that is because you don't have real controls over the economy from the central bank or from the, the various governments. Are you saying that they've either got to be individual countries or really integrated completely and they're sort of halfway now and it doesn't kind of work? That's exactly it. Uh -huh. If you want to have one currency, then you have to have one economic policy. Right. And that's not what they have right now. They're trying to have it both ways and it's just not going to work. That's exactly it. Is the EU just um, a smarter way for Germany to take over Europe? <laughs> Are you asking me personally? Yeah, I'm asking you personally. No, <laughs> I don't think it is. No, I'm going to agree with the Nobel Prize Committee who gave the EU the Peace Prize. Right. A lot of people poo-pooed that, but I agree with it. The primary purpose of the European Union was to keep the peace. These are countries that have been at each other's throats since the history of written time. Uh, it's just been one increasingly large war after another. And... I think everybody saw at the very beginning uh, when they first created the Economic Coal and Steel Union that the point of bringing in Germany into a union with France was to keep the peace, to keep people from shooting oh, at each other. Yeah. That if people rely upon each other, basically the French know that if the Germans go down economically, they go down too, and vice versa. Hmm. And that is the point of the EU, and it has worked until this point. Nobody is shooting at anybody. So people can laugh and complain and ridicule the European Union and all sorts of different reasons, but the fundamental triumph of the European Union is the fact that, as the founders envisioned way back in the late 1940s, 
you would interweave the economies, especially of Germany and France, so it would be inconceivable that the continent would go to war again. You have said that exactly correctly, and I think it's working. If you're a Dutch person and you've lived there for over 20 years, when you think about the good things about the European Union, how does it, on the other hand, threaten Dutch identity? Is everybody becoming just uh, mixed in altogether, or are the beautiful idiosyncrasies of the cultures in Europe, are they still strong? When you hear that the European Union is threatening cultural identities, all you have to do is travel around Europe to see how ridiculous that claim is. I mean, the Dutch are still very Dutch, and they still like their raw herring. And uh, what really does a Dutch person have in common or a Finnish person have in common with uh, a Greek person or a Portuguese person? Other than those things that make us human and the fact that they share a lot of products because they're in an economic union, truth be told, character-wise, not a lot. Each country still very much has its own individual character. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jonathan Grobert. Jonathan and his family have lived in the Netherlands for over 20 years. He's a journalist, former host of The State We're In on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, the prohibition against marijuana is a big issue in the United States, and each year different states are voting on whether it should be okay for medical use or or decriminalized or out-and-out legalized, taxed, and regulated. The Netherlands are famously progressive on marijuana laws. What's the latest on the marijuana situation in the Netherlands? Well, you know, it's been confusing here for the last few years because the previous government decided they were going to really tighten up on it. They were going to make it impossible for tourists to get weed or hashish in coffee shops. They were going to make sure that you had to be local, that you had to have a specialized card, that you had to show that you lived locally. As a result of that, everything that everybody predicted would happen happened. That is to say, uh, the street dealer made a reappearance after years of being, you know, not uh, on the Dutch streets. Um, They even found one guy who was in Maastricht, which is very close to Belgium, to Germany. So a lot of Germans and Belgians go there to buy their pot and their weed. And uh, they said, hey, where did you get your pot and your weed? And he said, oh, I just walked down the street to the coffee shop and I bought it there. And now I'm selling it to the Belgians and the Germans. Of course, that guy got arrested the next day, but it happened. Well, because because the the new weed uh, card let only locals buy marijuana from the coffee shops. That's exactly right. The idea was to make it for the locals only. Well, uh, the new government that got voted into office in September has decided that they're going to do away with the weed card, that it's not a success, even though they're not going to come right out and say that, but that people are going to have to go in and show their ID in order to buy weed. I guess the idea is to make it a little more... Upfront. That's right. They're concerned about people from countries where marijuana is not legal coming in, buying it and taking it home, because the biggest coffee shops in the Netherlands were the ones near the border. That's exactly right. So... Bottom line, in the future, you'd predict that the coffee shop system for marijuana will be status quo? Yes, but you have to be willing to walk in and show them your passport. So is it worth it to you? I don't know. It might be. <laughs> well, that's for each person to, to decide on their own what kind of travel thrills they want. Jonathan Gruber, thank you for getting us up to date on the Netherlands and best wishes in your work as a journalist. You're welcome. Up next, we'll go behind the camera with frequent traveler Samantha Brown. And Samantha's got a new travel special coming up later this month. She'll update us on her latest adventures with tips for putting a little sparkle into your own travels, whether you have a camera crew or not. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Sono Ferenc Mate da Montalcino in Toscana e io viaggio sempre con Rick Steves. That means in English, I'm uh, Ferenc Mate from Montalcino, Tuscany, and I travel with Rick Steves. Sono Ferenc Mate e io viaggio sempre con Rick Steves. Thank you. Of all the travel shows on TV, 
among my favorites are the ones hosted by Samantha Brown. For a dozen years now, Samantha's been finding fun all around the world and sharing it with all of us. Starting with Passport to China, her series have covered destinations in Asia, Latin America, and Europe. And she's been highlighting domestic getaways in her Great Weekend series, too. Samantha Brown joins us today to tell us how she makes sharing the highlights of the world into her job and to fill us in on her latest adventures. Samantha, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Rick. You know, I just love watching your show. You go to all these great places, but there's something you inject, can I say, a perkiness? Sure, I don't find that word offensive at all. I think that hits it on the nose, yes. And it just makes you want to jump up and get on a plane and go hug some person from a country far away. (laughs) (laughs) I make the world huggable, is that what you're saying? That's right, yeah. (laughs) And does that come naturally? Is that how you are in everyday life? Absolutely. And, you know, when I started the job, I had zero travel experience, just zero. And uh, starting a job, uh, well, it's a dream job, and I knew that from the beginning, but also to now have a job where you're showing people the world and yet you don't have that experience yourself, I found that instead of trying to be, may I say you, because I've obviously uh, admired your work, I wasn't Rick Steves, I wasn't Lonely Planet, uh, I wasn't Rudy Maxa, so I knew that I had to be something else, and something else was just myself, and I was discovering the world for the first time. So at the time, we did Passport to Europe, which was, gosh, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. And instead of projecting being an expert or that, hey, I know what I'm doing, I instead thought, well, let's invite people to join me on my discovery as I was seeing the world for the first time. And as you know, it's very wide-eyed and bushy-tailed when you get to not only travel, but also that it's your job. So it came very naturally. I'm sure the people at the Travel Channel recognize that we're going there and experiencing it for our first time with Samantha. I remember talking to you earlier, and I was struck by the fact that you're really a a television host first, and then you found this gig as a traveler. Do you remember when it hit you that, oh, this travel is actually a lot of fun? Yeah, this travel is actually better than being in television in general, because my background (laughs) is acting. Was it right away? Was It It was probably three years into it. And I, I will say that even after Europe, it was really Latin America, Rick, that I caught what people call the travel bug, that I realized what my passion was. Because I found being in Europe, you have such an intense itinerary of all these things we were brought up loving and admiring through books, literature, paintings, you know, the Louvre, uh, the, the Colosseum, the Eiffel Tower. And therefore, there's a lot of pressure just to be in the past in Europe, I found. Right. Uh, maybe not pressure, but just, you know, must-dos are always the museums and the, the monuments and castles. And it wasn't until... Right, the ob- obligatory stuff. Yeah, right. And of course, you have to see these things. You have to. But when I got to Latin America, you know, they don't have that infrastructure that Europe has. They don't have all the pomp and circumstance. And then so it enabled me to relax and spend more time just being in the moment with the people themselves. Instead of understanding what, you know, the European culture was like and how it's been there since, you know, the the Greeks and the Romans, you're there in the moment, in the present. And I just found that electrifying. So that's when I thought this, this for me is what travel is about. And that's two sides of a coin. You can go to the Parthenon and understand, you know, the story of ancient Greece, and you can go to Wittenberg and understand about the Reformation. Or you can go to a market in Guatemala and just laugh with the people that you're meeting. Absolutely, and get a bowl of their chicken soup and, and, and sit beside them and have absolutely no idea what they're saying, but their expressions are exactly how our expressions are, and you can communicate without words between you. And it's a different approach, and I think the balance of the two is is what ultimately what people should be going for in their travels. You know, I find, Sam, when I'm traveling, and my beat is Europe, so I spend most of my travel time there, but... I oftentimes just find myself thinking, life is good. Life is good. As a matter (laughs) of fact, just spontaneously on my last show in Venice, I I closed it not with, uh, you know, keep on traveling, but I closed it with, life is good. Be thankful. And I think a a lot of people who don't get out don't recognize it. If you just sit at home and watch the TV news, you think life is not that good. But you can be on a ridge in the Andes or in a market Mm -hmm. in, in Guatemala or something like that and really celebrate life. Take me to one moment in Latin America where you just got giddy about life. I was uh, in Peru, and uh, we were we were about two days away from going to Machu Picchu. And we had a day off, and we were in uh, Cusco. What is it? It's like ten or 12,000 feet up there, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing. Yes, yes, exactly. So I was in Cusco, Peru, and I, I set out for a nice hike because it's just a beautiful area, and I was just going to 
take this road up and go. And as I was hiking, an older gentleman uh, joined me. We were both sort of, you know, walking, and he was uh, spoke Spanish. I don't know if he was Peruvian or not, but, you know, he started talking to me. Oh, lo siento, no, no, uh, no español, or un poco, solamente un poco. And, and so we had this really great conversation. His name was, you know, mi nombre es Armand. His name was Armand. I'm like, and we had this whole conversation about not only that the Twin Towers coming down, we had conversations about why I was here, about Machu Picchu, and it just completely involved gestures and my little Spanish and his gestures and his very little English. And we had this wonderful just experience together. And at the very end, I said, you know, como tu nombre? And uh, he said, you know, mi nombre es Herman. And I said, ah, oh, mi nombre es Samantha. And he just stopped. And he looked at me and he said, tu nombre es Samantha? I said, yeah, sí, sí. And uh, he grabs his little nose or he points to it and wiggles it and goes, magic. Anyone who watched Bewitched growing up, <laughs> Samantha is the witch. And when I first had the name Samantha, well, I've always had the name Samantha, but in my early years, up until about 10, that's all anyone would say to me. Oh, can you wiggle your nose and <laughs> make things happen? And of course, I loved Bewitched. So I hadn't heard that in some 25 years and so for him to and there do you are, that, in some I just, remote village yeah, in Peru exactly. in the mountains, ten thousand feet. Oh, magic, right. Samantha! Magic, exactly. And and we just had this great laugh. Those are the moments, aren't they? And yeah. if, if you don't get out of your hotel and away from the tour group, you know you're not that approachable when you're with the tour group. And if you do meet no, a local, right. they're just trying to make money off you. But if yeah. you venture away on your day off, that's when it happens. And I always say, you know, I, I in a way I don't travel alone because I'm with a shooting crew. But on my days off and when we're done shooting, I'm absolutely alone. And I like being alone. And, you know, women are always asking me at the travel shows that you and I both go to a lot, you know, how do you feel about a woman traveling alone and would you feel this is safe? I say, absolutely. In fact, I mean, I've been in cities that people look out for you. They really do. And you can feel it. And especially if you're a, a female alone, when you don't have a partner in crime, like either your spouse or your best friend, you have to be open to other people. And so it allows people to approach you and allows you to be approachable to them. So um, I always recommend traveling alone. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Samantha Brown. Samantha Brown's travels have been entertaining us for more than a decade now. Hey, Samantha, give us just a quick recap of your career as a TV host for the Travel Channel. What are the series you've done and, and then what are you up to now? Sure. So the very first series was Great Vacation Homes. That led to Great Hotels, which led to Girl Meets Hawaii. Then there was uh, Passport to Europe, Latin America, Asia, Weekend Getaways, and then our Asia series. And then what are you doing uh, lately? And so now I just got back from Venice as well. We're shooting a new um, show called Trip of a Lifetime for the Travel Channel. And it's amazing. We're showing an area of Europe, mainly Venice, Croatia, uh, Montenegro, that area, giving people ideas that this is a great area to be in. And then they build their Adriatic itinerary based on sort of our recommendations and, of course, what they would love to do. And the person with the best itinerary, I'm not sure how they're going to judge it, wins, get this, Rick, $100,000 for a trip to the Adriatic for them and three of their friends, so four people. $100,000. $100,000. You can buy a lot of sardines for $100,000. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I ate a lot of sardines in Venice, <laughs> let me tell you. Hey, did, did you travel the Croatian coast then? Oh, I didn't. I, you know, there's a few of the hosts that are doing this. Yeah. And so I got Venice and, and Prosecco. Okay. And, um, you know, when we're shooting, it's, um, you breeze through things very quickly. I was doing a lot yeah. of stand-ups. You know, I used to think when I was first getting into this travel that, oh, I'll be in... I'll be in Copenhagen for six days. I'll be in Dublin for six days making a half-hour show. I'll learn a lot. But the reality is you spend six days in that place learning your lines and waiting for the rain yep. to stop and and, uh, yes. and, and, and doing all sorts of sitting in an office trying to get permission to take the camera into the church and that kind of, Absolutely. Kind of thing. Absolutely. Tell us yes, about yes. your crew when you're out on, on the road. How many people are in your crew? I usually travel with a cameraman, a sound man, a producer. We pick up a fixer and a PA wherever we are in the country we're in. And very envious, I have my own stylist who takes care of my wardrobe and makes sure my hair looks good. I know you have the same thing, Rick, because you always look so dashing <laughs> oh, yeah. and your you lip gloss show, is you perfect. Know I've got a stylist. <laughs> You've got a stylist. Wow. I have a stylist. I do, because, you know, when you're in Cambodia and it's 110 degrees, you can't look like it's no. 110 degrees. You know, so. I, was just, I was just on your website. And by the way, Samantha-Brown.com is a great website. And I was reading I was reading about your stylist. You get touched up every 10 minutes. 
Oh, yeah, sometimes. Yes, absolutely. And I need it. I mean, you you definitely see where humidity can play. And and just may I say, I think women are held to a very high standard when it comes to their look. And um, even like TV executives don't understand, you know, I'll get notes that say your hair looks terrible. Well, don't take me to New Orleans in August. <laughs> you, you know, know there's, that, there's a very true. easy way to solve this problem. We're not in a, we're not in a controlled uh, environment in a studio like, you know, cooking shows are, you know, we're, we're out there and it's, it can be grueling. Do you ever look at Hillary Clinton and think, boy, she's just got jet lag and no stylist and working really hard. And if she was a man, nobody would notice, but. No one would notice. I look at Hillary Clinton and go, wow, I hope I have that stamina in the next five years, let alone. Yeah. You and I would know how brutal that is to be on the road and then having to step off the plane and really function. But uh, what's your stylist's name? Her name is Christina Burns, and well, she's fantastic. Well, you tell her she does a great job. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, she, she is amazing, amazing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Samantha Brown. Samantha, we were talking about your crew. Have you ever done anything, uh, or do you have any sort of um, tendencies that try the patience of your director? Um, let's see. In what way uh, are you a high-maintenance Oh, oh, yeah, you want the dirt on me, is that <laughs> I want it? the is dirt on it? you, yeah. I get um, hungry and I get testy at 4 p.m., but everybody who works with me knows this, and I'll get these emails saying, Samantha needs energy bars and uh, a cappuccino at 3.30 p.m., and if I don't have that, you know, I break down. So that's where if I get up, I'm hungry and yeah. tired... You know, that's when you see a little, lot of testiness. I'm the same way. I steal a, a sandwich from breakfast and I just put it in a Ziploc baggie because we're <laughs> out. You know, when you're when the sun's good and you're out there on the streets doing your show, you can't stop the whole crew. But I just need something mid-morning or I can't uh, smile on camera. I agree. I agree. You get really low energy. And, of course, you throw in heat. Oh, yeah. Um, and there, oh, it, it just drains you. And if the host is not happy, the show will suffer. That's right. <laughs> we have a lot of power, Keep don't Rick we? Rick happy. <laughs> and how are you involved in your production beyond hosting, or are you? Oh, absolutely. Um, definitely in, in Passport to Europe and Latin America, I was heavily involved in the writing of the show. Uh-huh. And that, that was because, you know, they would be writing things for me, VO mainly. Voiceover, that's what you would tape later, yeah. Voiceover, and it just wasn't in my voice. and. Right. So for Passport to Europe, everything I said on camera as well, I wrote. And how I would do that is, you know, I, I'd never been to the Coliseum, but I would research the Coliseum and I would find, you know, three, four different points that I thought for me were just fascinating about it. Mm-hmm. So when we were there on the ground, I could kind of turn to which point I wanted to talk about instead of, you know, figuring out what I'm going to say. I, great hotels and great vacation homes was completely improv, you know, huh. improvisational. But huh. I find you, you can't improv on, on history. You can't just make dates up, yeah. unfortunately. Well, that'll haunt you. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you, and I'm sure you feel the same way, when you finally get to these places that you've dreamed of going and you see them, you know, you're not eloquent at all. All you say is, wow, that's right. awesome. You know, that's, that's and, basically... And when you get home, you realize what you could have shared while you were there with the crew. Exactly. And you kick yourself. Right. So, you know, you know, you're in Italy, you've got a permit, and that permit says you can shoot on sticks with a camera for um, an hour right. outside the Coliseum. After that, there's going to be three people telling you you have to leave. So you've got an hour. So in that hour, I can't be figuring out what I'm going to say. I need to, you know, have that ready. But I also want to convey the emotion of being there. And, you know, I've seen some travel shows where they're not really travelers. It's just I remember seeing one where the person just looked up and goes, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Like, I just need a little more from you. (laughs) Yeah, I just want a little more. So does that actually determine what you're going to stay on on camera then as you choose your favorite three or whatever dimensions of that site to talk about? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, so we'll, you know, we'll get there and and we'll, you know, me with the cameraman and the producer, we'll just kind of assess the situation because we haven't had time to Mm pre-pro it. This is the first time there. And we'll say, what should we go with? Okay, we're going to go with this. And we all kind of meet and it's definitely an ensemble approach of, this is an amazing shot. The, the sun is perfect because it's pointing in this direction. If, Sam, you want to do this, just understand that it's right near the traffic and there's too much noise and we're going to be fighting and maybe we should cut that idea. So we cut that idea. And this is all done in literally five, right. ten minutes. Because you've got because the clock ticking. You've got the clock ticking. So you go into, the, let's say, the Coliseum then, Sam, and you know what three little factoids you want to share on camera? 
yeah, yeah, I'll have, you know, my, my scripts, as I call right. them, and it's just marked up with things that I just thought were fascinating. That you want to say to the camera. Yeah. And then the other stuff will be written as voiceover that you'll tape later. Yeah. So you get there, and you have to decide where you're going to shoot to cover those beautiful ideas. Right, right. And a lot of times the voiceover is simply... The Coliseum is open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Yeah, and you don't need if to you go here, camera. you can get, you know, so it's a little more <laughs> <laughs> instructional. Right. So I try to make sure that what the the emotion of being there, the enjoyment of being in a place, and the yeah. great information that gets you really, you know, juiced to be there is me on camera. And then all the logistics can be yeah. voiceover. That works very well. Now that you say that, remembering watching your shows, I think that that really is effective. I know you've got a background in theater and music. Does that impact your work? The improvisation part, absolutely, and I think the performance part. You know, there are times when I'll watch my performance, as I call it, and I'm always looking at it saying, are you talking to a person sitting down, or are you just talking to a camera and being kind of hosty, as you know, a presentery? So that there's a level of believability and authenticity that I feel is so important to watching and enjoying my show and that's absolutely, you know, what I've learned from a background of being in the theater is being real, yeah. just being a real person. So. You can probably employ that when you're, when you're interacting with locals. I remember my producer would say they'd have this dreaded command, interact. And I was supposed to go into this crowd of people I didn't know and look like I'm having a good time, you know. Uh, that's quite, do, you, do you ever have that challenge? Okay, the light's oh, right, there's yeah. people here, interact. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you're just the new kid coming into the cafeteria for the first time and everyone's looking at you and, and you just feel like, oh, everyone thinks I'm a loser. You yeah. know, you've got this huge camera With this big on camera. And, and do you use a boom mic also? The boom mic. What we'll do, and it, it puts us kind of at risk, is because we used to do that a lot. And I said, let's just, because obviously when a camera's there, yeah. we try to keep it as contained as possible, right. but it does, you know, it does affect the sure. the energy of a place. Well, the boom mic does too. See, I don't even use a boom mic because you got this stick hanging overhead with a mic hanging from it and it just, everybody freezes up. So we, we right. dispense with that and once in a blue moon we have to bring out those reflectors, you know, those big giant yep. dishes that reflect the sun <laughs> and then forget any kind of casual <laughs> on camera here. Everybody's going to be <laughs> trying to get in the camera. In Norway they call it lens lice. People try to walk into your camera. Oh yeah, and you have to stop the <laughs> shot. Yeah, oh, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. If people realized, and that's what I love talking about you, you know, it's, you know, it's not easy to get some of the shots that no. you just think take no time and they don't, and you spend a lot of time. Well, the trick is to make it look like it takes no time, but it does. Right. <laughs> Samantha Brown tells us about her next big adventure in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. And we'll check in with listeners at 877-333-7425 for ideas on how to enjoy some of the fun of Europe this year just like you belong there. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. We've got just a few more notes to compare with Samantha Brown right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Then, we'll check in with listeners at 877-333-7425 to find out where you're planning to go this year to fit in like one of the locals instead of being just another tourist. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're sharing notes with Samantha Brown. And uh, Sam, how, how many days a year are you on the road when you're working at your peak on this? On the peak, I was uh, about 230 230 days a 230 year. 230 days. hmm And yes. now I understand you've got uh, a new part of your life you're embarking on. You've got, you're yes. pregnant. <laughs> I am. That's exciting. I'm pregnant with, uh, with twins with as twins. well. With so. twins. And, and I noticed yes. on your website you're actually uh, letting people suggest names. Have you heard any names suggested that you might consider in the short list? I thought people came up with really great names. And, of course, they were very geographical and, you know, Ireland from Dublin. You know, you can name your kids anything these days. And it was a great exercise. It really opened my mind to, okay, we could go there. Although it might be a little cheesy for someone in the travel business to name their child Madrid and Barcelona, you know. (laughs) You got twins. Can I make a a suggestion? Sure. Nina and Pinta. (laughs) Then you could wait for Santa Maria. Two ships. That's right. (laughs) Two two ships. I'll tell you, I feel like a, a ship right now. <laughs> well, I have a full cargo. That is very exciting. Is this when you have the kids? Are you gonna? What are you gonna do with your TV hosting and so on? Well, I certainly would love to continue. I do not want this to. I, I'm sure it will slow me down in travel. I mean, I was on my own, and 
you know, that just I've got two kids and that's going to change the schedule a bit, but I certainly want them to travel with me. And I will take all the advice I can get, Rick. I know you probably have traveled with, uh, do you have one daughter? I have two kids, and uh, they're in their 20s now, and we took them to Europe every year throughout their whole life. Boy, if you can do that, it's just, it makes them comfortable with the rest of the planet, and I just think it's one of the most beautiful things you can do. In fact, we took our kids out of school um, every May for four or five years of their schooling, and the teachers, you know, supported that, and And Mm -hmm. we felt it was really stimulating for the kids and got them out of their comfort zone and really really was an exciting kind of parenting. And uh, maybe we'll look for a Samantha Brown and uh, twins on the road coming up. Exactly. Yes, yes. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Samantha Brown about to embark on a whole new kind of adventure. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Margo's on the line in Redmond, Oregon. Margo, thanks for your call. Well, thanks, Rick. I really love your programs, and I also have loved Sam's programs for many years. And you've already answered one of my questions, which was whether Samantha is going to continue with her programs once her twins are born. But my question now goes back a bit. Uh, You were talking about traveling and meeting wonderful people and being a single woman and so forth. Just out of curiosity, did you happen to meet your partner during your travels? I did not. I I met him here in New York City, and he was just friend of a friend, so... Well, that's great. I also had to let you know, you're talking about how exhausted you get in the late afternoon. I used to, Part of your programs, which I used to love, perhaps it was great hotels, was when you'd go back to your wonderful rooms, flop on the bed, and then perhaps an hour and a half later arrive downstairs for cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good that life. That must have been refreshing. Yeah, but <laughs> I think you always manage to charm everybody, men, women, and so forth. And it's great to hear your talking about this and also... Also, Rick, how much work goes into being spontaneous and charming and informative. So I thank you both for those experiences. For <laughs> you're well, thank you're you, welcome. Margo. Thanks, Margo. Thanks for your thank call. You. I, I got to say, Sam, I really enjoy connecting with you at travel shows and so on because we can empathize with, with how sometimes it, you're so determined to get across the fun of a moment or a travel experience. Mm-hmm. But when you have a camera there and you just don't have the complete control, it can be frustrating and then you got to recreate the fun and it's just hard to make it as as magic as it really is and i hope that our viewers can understand that if it looks like fun it's actually even better (laughs) (laughs) i like that so hey samantha i'd like to just finish by asking you if you could produce your own show once you get settled Mm -hmm. with the twins and everything and be in complete control of it what would the show be and what would you name it I have an idea that I want to do so badly. I think with the twins, it has to wait maybe a year or so. But I want to do a show where I go on vacation with large groups of people, whether they are the, you know, the red hat ladies who wear the purple and the red hat ladies to Harley Davidson drivers to big family reunions. And I want to travel with them and do what they do and just spend time with them. And this is all based on a great New York Times article where the reporter embedded with the Amish, and they go down to Florida every year, the Amish, yeah. and they put away their hats, and they take out their cell phones, and the girls wear bikinis, and all of a sudden, for one week, they're not Amish, they're not farmers, they're vacationers. And I found that fascinating. I had no idea. And I would love to discover how people vacation. You know, I could follow groups of the Chinese and the Brazilians coming to New York for the first time. What do they do? Because we get so many impressions from how we spend our time leisurely, and I I love being with people, so it would, you know, two birds with one stone. I'd be able to travel, and I'd be able to meet people and understand them more. And you'd be the perfect host. I think that's a great idea. Thank you. I'm going to tune in. Samantha Brown, best wishes with your twins, best wishes for your uh, future travels, and thanks for all the travel fun you've brought so many of us. Thank you, Rick. Samantha Brown's latest TV special is called Trip of a Lifetime. And it premieres Wednesday, January 30th, on the Travel Channel. Now, let's check in with a couple of our listeners who wrote us at radio at ricksteves.com to find out what kind of fun they're looking forward to in their travels this year. Randy in San Jose, California, thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. Uh, I wanted to ask you about soccer in England. Have you ever gone to a match? Would you recommend it? Um, I've been to a couple, and I was just wondering what your thoughts were about that. You know, I've been to soccer matches on the continent in Italy, and uh, I know that they're very popular all over Europe, and I've been to hurling matches in Ireland. Every time I go to a stadium in Europe filled with sports fans, especially if it's a game I don't normally go to otherwise, it's always a fun experience. What was your experience like in England? 
I went to Old Trafford in Manchester. It was just fabulous. Um, I would highly recommend it to anybody. Everybody said, well, it's going to be violent. There's a lot of drunks there. It wasn't any more than any more drunks than you would see at a typical NFL game. And I'm planning this year coming up to go to London to see a series of matches as well. And uh, I would really, really strongly recommend it. I, I don't know how a person could go to Europe and not get caught up in the soccer, yeah. <laughs> the soccer mania that well, exists there. It is very spirited, isn't it? They say uh, it's a very good outlet for people who don't have wars to vent. They can just go to the stadiums and, and get all excited about this. I mean, to be packed with 50,000 people in a stadium singing ole, 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 ole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, um, I went to see a match at the San Siro in Milan. And it was just crazy with the people that would come in with the, they have the flags with their team on it. They come in with road flares. I mean, they're just absolutely crazy. But they're very, you know, they're very respectful, too. They're not, you know, just, you know, screaming obscenities. They're just very, very passionate for their teams. So you didn't find the hooliganism was a physical danger to the tourist that would venture into that scene? No, no. In fact, when I went to Manchester, there was a, an English fellow there and his wife, and I, I understand soccer, but you know, I still don't understand all the rules. And he would say, oh yeah, you know, this is an offside rule, and he would tell me uh, you know, about different players and how things worked, and it was just great. And I, when I went to London, I, I didn't get a chance to go, but they have these things there. They call them the West London Derby. Americans, we call it a derby, like the Kentucky Derby, and that's how it's spelled there, but they pronounce it Darby. Right. And I didn't realize that in West London there's probably four or five teams. You have Chelsea, Fulham, West Ham United, Tottenham, and one called Leighton Orient that are all within about three or four miles of each other. Hmm. Now, for a soccer fan, I mean, if I lived there, I would just be at the stadium all day long. (laughs) It's like Chicago has the White Sox and the Cubs. These big cities have their... Their teams, and sometimes there's more than one teams, and people all their lives are with this team or that team. And I found every time I've gone to a stadium, Randy, that outside there's these little stands where you can buy the scarves and the flags and the hats, and and you should choose which team you want to support and buy that color, and then remember who you're rooting for, because if you're wearing the wrong color and yeah. choosing for the wrong team, it might be embarrassing. Yeah, when I went to Manchester, they uh, they talked about that because there's two teams. You have Manchester United and you have Manchester City. And they would talk about the blue side of town versus the red side of town. Yeah. And they would say, don't go in that side of the town wearing your Manchester United jersey. Or you're going to invite problems for yourself. Right. I want to echo what you say about the scarves because I have the soccer package. And I get up on Saturday morning, watch the matches from London and from Rome and from Barcelona. And it's really neat that you'll see them, all the fans. A lot of them wear the jersey, but they, their thing is the scarf. They're affordable, and they're easy to travel with, and it's just a great memory. And then when you're in the stadium, you feel like you're caught up in the energy because you've got that the scarf with the correct colors on it. And you're with 50,000 local people, and I swear there's not a tourist in the whole crowd. It's just purely a local event, and that in itself is, is quite a thrill for a traveler. Oh, and they have, um, you know, the one of the things on your shows that you talk about, is, and especially for England, is the pub culture. And most of them will have some pubs around there, and they'll tell you, oh, this is a good one to meet people. I've never had any problems at any of them. Most of the time, most people buy you a drink. They'll ask you about America. They'll, they'll make comments about American soccer and our lack of success in it. And then it, it also gives you an excuse to talk to people and connect with people as you're traveling. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm going to go back, and I, I counting the days. You know, it's fun to go to a sporting event in a stadium where you can understand the language, and then you can hear the the taunting cheers and so on. I remember I was in a stadium, and some player got injured, and they were chanting, he'll be back, he'll be back in the B League, like he'll never be back in the majors again. One thing that's really very moving is the stadium in Liverpool, which is called Anfield, and they have a song, an old song by Jerry and the Pacemakers called You'll Never Walk Alone. And before each of the games, they start and they sing this song, and it's hmm. like 80,000 people there singing the song. It's very, very moving. Wow. It'll bring you to tears. The actor Samuel Jackson was there when I was there, and I remember reading an interview with him that he almost started crying that he, you know, hear all these voices in unison sing that song. Randy, when you're traveling, you can just find locally when there's a game, and it's probably most weekends there's a game, and, and what does a ticket usually cost you? Um, it depends on where you want to sit. The big teams like Chelsea and Arsenal, 
and Tottenham, you'll probably pay uh, for a 40 to 50 yard line seat, you'll probably pay 60 to 70 euros. But if you're not real particular where you sit, and some of them will have a family section, if you know, if you bring your kids with you, you can go for 15, 25 euros. That'd be like 20 or 25 dollars. That is a very, very good value, well worth your time and your money, and you'll come home with a memory for the rest of your life. Well, yeah, one thing that also, you know, Europe, some of the smaller towns in England, I've been to some, they have a, what's they called League One, which is probably equivalent to like a double-A baseball right. um, here in the United States. And they'll have a, a small town that will have probably 2,300, 2,400-seat stadium, and they'll have sometimes the big clubs will come through, like Manchester United, which you know is a huge team, came to a small town and played a team called Aldershot. Hmm. But, I mean, this is like the Yankees coming, you know, to play a you know, single-A baseball team, and you can sometimes find tickets for these small things for 5 to 10 euros a, a ticket. And it, the, the fans are just as hungry. They love their team just as much. And it, it's just really, really amazing. Randy, that's a great insight. Thank you so much. Those are great tips. Thanks, Rick. And Chad's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Chad, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. For the last uh, several years, I've been contributing um, designs for the Carnival de Nice in Nice, France. Uh, I'm not sure how many listeners are aware of uh, the Carnival, but for the last several years, they've opened up the contest to cartoonists to design floats um, for a large satirical parade they hold every year in, in February. So I've been doing that for several years, and we've been vacationing there. I think we've been there about four times for the Carnival, and it's just an, an incredible experience. Now, is the Carnival sort of like uh, the French uh, version of Mardi Gras or something like that, or how would you describe the Carnival? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is the French version of Mardi Gras. I think it is one of the first carnivals in Europe, and, you know, it's from the Catholic tradition where they were celebrating before fasting for Lent, and so it's directly related to the New Orleans Mardi Gras in that sense. Okay, so um, basically, and, to put it in historic perspective, every year people knew they had to be really good and give up all sorts of decadence and hedonism during Lent. What is that, the 40 days or something leading up to Easter? So they have this blowout before that, Mardi Gras or Carnival. Right, exactly. Yeah, okay. I'm not Catholic, but this is what I understand from hey, it. Hey, it's so. a party. Anybody's <laughs> welcome. Okay, so there's carnival celebrations all over Europe. You go to Nice every year, and, and what do you design? It's kind of a little complicated. They, um, they've had this, this carnival celebration, I think, since the 1870s with large float processions, of which there's around uh, 20 large floats, and they're, they're huge. I think they get up to about oh, 40 feet high, some of them. And since, I think, 2003, they've opened up the contest to cartoonists around the world, and I found out about it in 2005. So we've, we've been there four times for the carnival, and, uh, wow. and it's, it's great, yeah. So they create a float from your drawing, and they have this huge warehouse. It kind of looks like maybe a small Boeing in mm. <laughs> Seattle Airline Manufacturer, but instead of planes, they're just giant floats. And I think they spend about five months creating them. Uh, from different designs. Wow. And then you're there for the actual um, parade? Um, yeah, we've gone about uh, four times. I think I, I won six times, and we've been there for four parades. So and, Wow. And what's the parade like? It's a total blast. There's three different processions. There's a nighttime procession where they put lights on the floats, and they have a, a different type of, I guess, luminosity. And there's a daytime parade, which is kind of similar with the same floats. And accompanying both those, there's acrobats, entertainers, music, all kinds of things. There's a giant dragon that breathes smoke and grabs people in its mouth and lifts them up. Um, there's acrobats from around the world. And then there's also a flower parade where they have a lot of the, the flora from around the area because they're famous for their flowers around Nice. And that's a separate parade as well. Is it a drunken brawl with girls pulling up their shirts like in New Orleans? kind of expected to see, but it's actually kind of the opposite. Um, they're very well-behaved and reserved in the stands by American standards. But the interesting thing is the floats can be very satirical, um, even slightly making sexual jokes or... Um, it's jokes a little that, more subtle in good French style, I suppose. Yes, yes, I guess a, a little bit more sophisticated in the, right. in the way they dress and behave. Um, <laughs> but it, they still have fun. That's great. Now, now Nice has had a, a sort of a big city renovation going on in the last few years where they were tore up the city and building uh, this wonderful tram system. Were you there before and after that? Yeah, yeah. I think the first year we were there, they were building it, and they showed us some archaeological site that they had to uh, work around. They discovered while they were digging for the tram, I think from the 10th century or, or around that time period. 
God, that must be frustrating. You want to dig a, a track for a tram, and you find something a thousand years old, and you got to kind of talk to the museum people. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, to be building in a city in Europe. Well, what an exciting sort of theme you have to go back to Nice every year. And I'll tell you, all along the, the Côte d'Azur, the French Riviera, I think Nice is the one real cultural powerhouse. It, it's a city that would be there with or without tourism, and uh, it's just got a beautiful, powerful culture, a love of art, and, and a, a particularly, um, I think, sophisticated uh, way to enjoy the, the good life. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It seems like it's a, a city where real people live, in addition to also being fancy and nice, as yeah. a lot of other towns seem to be, you know, around that area seem to be kind of like wealthy enclaves. Now, it sounds like you're an artist, and Nice has more than a share of art galleries. Uh, what's your take on the, the best sort of uh, sightseeing for an art lover in Nice? Oh, wow. Well, I guess first, uh, just walking the streets in the old town, I mean, the way that everybody lives their lives in the shop windows and the buildings right. is, is just very artistic in itself. So that would be my first recommendation. But, uh, there, yeah, there's just there's wonderful art museums. There's a, I think it's the Museum Messina. They used to have old float designs as well for the carnival, but okay. a lot of painters from Nice. And then there's also the Matisse Museum and the Museum of Contemporary Art and pretty much every museum there. I think there's a huge one in St. Paul de Vence as well. Yeah, that, I, that's a very uh, sort of abstract art uh, gallery in St. Vance. But what about the, um, the Chagall House of Art? I haven't been to the Chagall one. Uh, it was actually closed for renovation when we were there. Oh, it um, is one of my favorite art museums anywhere in Europe. It was designed by Mark Chagall, and it just shows off his sort of quintessential lively masterpieces in a space designed and lit by the artist himself. You've got to see that uh, next time you're in Nice. Oh, wow, that's great, definitely. All right, Chad, well, let's uh, all think about Carnival in Europe next time. Thanks a lot for your call. Thanks, Rick. Okay, happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City and Radio Netherlands in Hilversum for their help today. You can chat with Rick and his guests. Simply add your email address to the Radio Waves link on our website and we'll notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. That's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.